Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and joining me as always through the miracle of satellite technology is Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Hello, uh, I'm doing well, thank you. Um, it's good to be back again after another break. We mm. seem to have settled into a unintentional bi-weekly schedule. Yeah, we're just trying to keep people on their toes. Everyone is getting too used to our regularity over the last six months or so. Mm, yeah, throw him a curveball and yeah, uh, yeah. Um, just just go phantom for a week and disappear. <laughs> yeah, it's a throwback to the old days. You know, we record one episode, we put it out two weeks after we've recorded, then we record <laughs> another episode, it goes out a month later, we don't do anything for like three months. You know, it's back, this is, uh, we're rebranding a shot reverse shot classic. Mm, I think it was weird, wasn't it? In the old days, we didn't used to do news. Mm. So it, there was never any kind of time sensitive There was no time-sensitive factor for us. And Mm. more to the point, no motivation for me to edit it quickly and get it up (laughs) because it would be, you know, irrelevant by the time it came out. So um, that's really kind of forced us into a schedule of being first in line with the hot takes on Mm. the week's news. Mm. Yeah, and I always reflect on how strange it is that when we both lived in the same city and only lived like a 25 minute walk away from each other it was so much harder to stick to a regular schedule than now that we live 3,000 miles away from each other yeah yeah that is weird but yeah maybe yeah and they just maybe the magic just couldn't be captured mm. um in the same room um yeah. it's easier easier with distance yeah although those handful of episodes were recorded on stage in uh, the lantern theater with no audience, uh, but mm. yeah, that was uh, not because we didn't sell tickets, but because we recorded it at, after hours. I don't want to suggest that, that we tried to stage live shows of a podcast in its infancy, which would have been <laughs> tremendous hubris. Um, but yeah, yeah. We, we had access to the theatre um, after hours, so we would record on stage. That was always quite uh, quite nice, weird mm. sense of grandeur to our, our rambles. Yeah, it kind of filled us with self a self-importance we hadn't come to earn. Um, yeah, and you know, still, if we did live recording of the podcast now, even in a venue as small as the Lantern, you know, we'd be we'd be struggling to fill that. Mm, well, I don't know. We just invite all the people we've had on as guests. That'll probably get us to like fifteen people if we can. Yeah. if we can kind of corral them all into a single city. Hmm. Yeah. Are we? Are you saying we're going on tour, Ed? Is this is <laughs> this the big announcement we're working towards? Yes, it's going to be a one shot performance recorded in i don't know the showroom bar mm-hmm. <laughs> secretly and not yeah. asking for any permission mm. yeah yeah i'm up for oh, it God. they used to do stuff like that not podcasts but like the showroom bar would often like offer itself up to bands to come into play and it was always it was always quite nice because it's an opportunity particularly for you know people who uh, i was often friends with who worked in the bar but it's such an unconducive atmosphere to a live performance to kind of bring a band up and everyone's just walking in to grab a beer in a plastic glass to take into screen two or they're waiting for their food it was like yeah it it, it never seemed to be the most helpful thing for a live performer i always felt a little sorry for anyone who signed up for the gig Mm, I'm a huge believer that they shouldn't, if it's a pub, you mm. should stop serving food when there's live music on. 
Because yeah. I, I went to, on the, I don't know if you ever did this, did you ever go on the folk train? No. Yeah, so there's a train that leaves Sheffield Station like the first Thursday of every month or something, and it goes to like, Grindleford or Haversidge, and mm. you get on, and it's the local stopping service, and there's a folk band on the train. Mm. And then the carriage, everyone's drinking beers, and there's a folk band playing. And then you get off the train, and the folk band keeps playing, and you walk to a pub, and then you get mm. to the pub, and then they play some more. And uh, we went to see, we went. I did it one once, and um, the band we followed to a pub in like Grindleford or whatever, got to this pub and it was like full, so they had to try and find another pub to go to. So Ooh. she found this other pub, and there was football being watched in one side, but they had a huge <laughs> function room in the back. But they continued to serve food, and the people who were at the gig, the folk uh, on the folk train, were ordering food. So there was like these two old codgers, like, like this kind of old guy who was like blind, but he had like a little squeeze box and he was playing it and there was his wife and she was like playing a fiddle and they were singing these kind of like beautiful like sea shanties and stuff and then like halfway through someone would be like walking in going pie and chips and then just kind of <laughs> stumbling over all these people sat on the floor and like you know giving people food and spilling gravy everywhere it kind of just ruined the vibe mm. yeah i mean it's great as a story of just a disastrous gig for people to tell when they go on like the radio i suppose but yeah, it's one of those things in the moment that can't feel great. I remember going to a friend's gig once and I, I I went to this gig. I was out for a different friend's birthday party and I knew that this this band was that my friend my other friend was in was playing around the corner. And I thought, oh, I'll go in and see them because, you know, it would be nice to say hello. And they hadn't really publicised that they were playing this gig. So... I was the only person in the audience <laughs> for this half hour gig that they played. And it was like, oh no, my whole plan was to come and say hi, stay for a song and then leave. And now I have to stay here for the entire time <laughs> because if I leave, their audience decreases by 100%. <laughs> and then I had to like run out and like frantically find where the party had moved to and apologize for being so late. But it was like, it was, they were, they did a really good show for me, but mm. like everyone involved seemed just, uh, yeah, terribly embarrassed by the whole situation. It's like, we've, we've fallen into a very strange situation here and there's no good way for anyone to get out. Mm. I think like in my band playing days, my very limited band playing days, I think we played to like five people once. Mm. And that felt like sarcastic um, <laughs> and a bit demeaning. You really, I think it was one person, especially if you knew them as well. You just stop when you, yeah. It'd be easy to dedicate songs to people in the audience though. That's true. Yeah. This, this cover of, I don't know, Maxwell's Silver Hammer is for you, Ed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it'd be cool, like, there's a lot of pressure on you to, like, get, put some money through the merch stand <laughs> as, the, <laughs> as the only punter at a mm. gig. Mm. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, although the averages, I guess, if would be great. It's like you had 100% <laughs> retention of uh, sales. Like, everyone who came to that gig bought something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100% anyway. of people who came to the, the gig snuck out through the toilet window. <laughs> It's exactly how I would have done it. That's how I'd have played that situation. Mm, yeah. Oh well. Uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. Mm. So uh, we haven't got a huge amount of news this week, as that ramble maybe suggests. Uh, <laughs> before we get onto our, as before we get onto our main topic, but there were a few stories that uh, we wanted to mention. 
two kind of overlap a little bit, but two of American sci-fi's kind of most storied franchises made similar but crucial announcements this week. Star Wars announced that they were going to hire, that they had hired their first ever woman of colour to work as an assistant director, which was uh, Victoria Mahoney, who's going to be the assistant director on Star Wars Episode Nine, working with J.J. Abrams, and Star Trek, not to be outdone, announced that the first female director will be directing the upcoming fourth film in the kind of J.J. Abrams-created continuity, uh, S.J. Clarkson. And both of those are you know, great in terms of uh, representation and visibility and women being given opportunities in Hollywood that generally don't go to female filmmakers. You know, the this was... And no woman has ever directed a Star Trek movie ever. Uh, so that's kind of great. And even, and, and, you know, there was a response to Victoria Mahoney, which was kind of like tempered enthusiasm of people like, yay, but it's still not a director job. But I think that's still significant because I think anyone who knows anything about Hollywood will know that representation for women is dire across the board when it comes to kind of below the line jobs there aren't a huge number of women cinematographers editors any job on a film chances are it's being done by a man in most productions so even though it would be nice if disney gave a star a movie of the scale of star wars to a female director having a woman and particularly a woman of color be essentially second command on what will be one of the biggest movies of all time has to be considered a step in the right direction. Yeah, although I I would like to correct you there, Ed. She's actually the uh, second unit director, not the oh, assistant unit. director. Right. So it's actually Sorry. the assistant director is you know more of an organizational kind right, of logistical right. role, but the second unit director, like, so she will be shooting scenes that will yeah. end up in the final cut. Yeah. Sorry, that's my, um, my mistake. I always mix up those roles. And I mean the the thing is that is you know slightly tempers the news is that it's not a progression like a lot of second unit directors are second unit directors that mm. is the top of their game type thing they don't yeah. graduate to being directors um, I mean there ha- have been kind of fringe cases but like it's still kind of excellent news like you say for anyone in uh, high profile roles. Um, to be given those jobs. Uh, like Bradford Young is the cinematographer on the Han Solo movie. Mm-hmm. So it is a kind of like a huge thing for that to happen. And the Star Trek news is kind of like, I think, a marker going down because we're talking about someone who has, I'm, I'm not entirely sure of her CV, but I'm pretty sure, is this her, would this be her debut feature? Uh, yeah, I scrolled through her IMDb credits. And I didn't see any feature work. It was a lot of lot of television. Most recently, things like um, uh, Jessica Jones, you know, and mm-hmm. going further back, EastEnders. So that's yeah, a, that's a that's a very big leap in uh, in in scope uh, from staging. I don't know fights in the uh, in the old Vic to uh, not the old Vic. What's the pub called in EastEnders? Uh, Queen Vic. Queen Vic. I was very close. Mm. Yeah, in in the Queen Vic to, you know, space battles. Uh, but yeah, that's... Uh, it's, it's perhaps also a sign, you know, we, we've seen in recent years more women getting job directing in television, you know, most notably 
uh, Ava DuVernay hired, I believe, entirely female directors to work on her show, Queen Sugar. The same thing happened with the second season of Jessica Jones. Mm-hmm. And, and a large part of that is just that there's so much TV being made now and there's so many episodes of TV that need to get made. There are just more jobs and so there's more opportunities there. And maybe what you're seeing here is that women who have been able to build up a CV through through television that, frankly, they probably don't have the opportunities to develop through actually making movies because fewer movies get made now anyway and very few of them end up going to to women directors that that is now giving them the sort of kind of like body of work to say hey i can do this give me a give me a fucking job (laughs) Mm. it also kind of speaks volumes to the fact that you know budgets and scope of tv is is kind of so far above whatever used to be that the step up is now not as big Mm, Uh, the idea that you can direct a couple of episodes of you know a season uh, of you know jessica jones or 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 a similar show and handle big action sequences and handle um you know budgets more than you would if you were working in independent film um you know budgets of tv shows are you know run into the millions per episode now so Mm. it's something that is a much better finishing school for blockbuster filmmaking than it ever used to be Mm, yeah absolutely and kind of our final story is really just kind of checking in on a story from the last episode which was the story about the controversy surrounding the character of Apu in the simpsons hank azaria went on the late show with stephen colbert and was asked directly about the controversy and uh, he gave what i thought was kind of a very graceful answer which was basically saying that he has heard the complaints about it and he feels bad that the the character has caused pain to people over the years because people use it as an insult against people of you know south asian descent and he said that you know he is willing to do whatever it takes to help this situation to maybe retire the character or have someone else take over the role and saying that he wanted to see maybe more writers of South Asian descent brought into the writer's room to maybe help with problems of representation and to maybe take the character away from being a stereotype if they continue using the character, uh, which I think by some margin was the most helpful response to the controversy that has been offered by anyone involved with the show who, to a person otherwise, has either not said anything or when they have said something, been incredibly shitty about it. Mm. Yeah, it was refreshing to see uh, kind of honesty. Um, I suppose he's in the easiest position um, Mm. in that he doesn't actually get to make any decisions of any real consequence other than if he just turned around and quit, which he wouldn't Mm. because he plays too many characters. Yeah. Um, But yeah, he's quite right. And I think that uh, hopefully that should put pressure on up the chain because the situation as it stands isn't ideal, uh, it's fair to say. Um, so it's good to see someone going out there and banging the drum for for the right thing. Mm, absolutely. So our main topic for this episode is going to be the movie Avengers Infinity War, the 19th movie in the MCU, is that right? Sounds about right, yeah. Somewhere in that region, I think, also straight out of spoilers. <laughs> yeah, we're going to spoil this for everyone, yeah. so... Yeah, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff in this episode, so uh, I sometimes forget to mention that, but uh, right up top, spoilers uh, for anyone who hasn't seen the movie yet and maybe wants to kind of dip back in at a later date to hear what we thought about it. But uh, yeah, it's the 19th 
installment in the series. Also, it's the third or fourth uh, installment in the Avengers kind of sub-thread, I guess, of the MCU, depending on whether or not you count Captain America Civil War as an Avengers movie, which it kind of is in name, in everything but name. Mm-hmm. And it marks the culmination, sort of, of six years basically of solid storytelling building up to this since the first Avengers movie since the introduction of the character of Thanos this character Mm -hmm. who has been seeking these gems called Infinity Stones to put into his special magic glove the Infinity Gauntlet and when he gets all six of them together allows him to essentially rewrite the universe uh, in particular for his purposes wiping out half of all life in the universe to make life more sustainable and uh, in this movie that plan kind of comes closer to fruition you know we've had hints of the character before we've been introduced to a lot of the infinity stones and finally that narrative kind of gains steam thanos comes into direct contact with most of the heroes who've been introduced over the previous movies and some of them don't come out of that situation (laughs) alive uh Mm -hmm as insofar as characters in comic book movies die, uh, which is kind of a a liminal state, I think it has to be said. Uh, But uh, for the purposes of where the story stands, a lot of them end up dead as a result of this. And beyond the story, you know, this has been somewhat unprecedented in terms of a company producing so many movies in such a a short space of time at such a scale, pointing towards this one kind of inflection point in pop culture, and, you know, creating something that, as uh, the current record stands, has got the biggest opening weekend of all time, 250-something million, and seems to be kind of this big watershed moment in superhero cinema, I guess. Hmm. It's kind of like the, the, the apotheosis of the last 10 years' worth of superhero movies all coming up and leading to this uh, i think every marvel film since what when did when did thanos first turn up was it he he definitely shows up in the avengers but does he turn up in a post credit scene yeah. in oh. before that maybe i i i only remember him being in the avengers yeah. he could show up in prior to that maybe in Thor or something yeah maybe one of those he kind of turns up so they've been kind of laying the groundwork for this for such a long time and it seems to be the the kind of the culmination of all that kind of work and these films make a lot of money anyway so it's absolutely no surprise that you know it looks like uh it's gonna smash um Mm -hmm. the uh the Force Awakens record because I think it's Force Awakens is current holder then it's last jedi which is some way behind uh, mm. and then it's black panther which is weird to think that uh you know two of the highest um you know opening weekends are in the cinemas at the same time it was also very strange that black panther held very very well this weekend it only dropped by 11 percent versus yeah. the previous week yeah but then you think oh i guess it makes sense because a bunch of people probably wanted to see it to get a refresher yeah it's weird as well my friend andy went to see it because he did um watched uh all of the marvel movies uh one a day until mm. um we went to see infinity war together on friday so on thursday night he went to see black panther 
Um, and Black Panther was, what, like in its 10th, 11th, 12th week of release, something like that. Mm, um, yeah. Uh, sold out. So wow. still doing, and like in a 140-seat cinema, which is one of the smaller ones, but it's still, you know, it's doing great, great showman numbers. Hmm. Yeah. And before we get into the kind of the talk of the meta sense of this and what this possibly means for the future of cinema, because I think that whenever a endeavor like this is so successful and makes so much money, you know, it's going to have ripples throughout the industry. I mean, the the entire MCU is drastically reshaped how blockbusters are made anyway because of the number of people who have tried to imitate what they've done and all failed spectacularly Mm -hmm. Um, i think we should probably delve into what we think about the movie itself matt what were your kind of expectations going in and how did you feel about how the movie lived up to them well i remember when did the Avengers come out? Like 2012, 13, yep. something like that? 12, yeah. And I remember you stuck it in our end of year, or it was it was in your voting for the end of year list, and I remember when you, you sent it to me, mm-hmm. I kind of had so little interest in the Avengers movies, <laughs> and I kind of really wasn't that bothered. Um, but since then, I've kind of uh, learned to love the Marvel movies in the sense that we kind of said it on the a podcast once where we just said like they're all just good do you know what i mean mm. at least good you know they're going to be at least good um and that's something that i kind of underestimated how difficult that was and they've with a few exceptions kept the bar quite high and i always come away from watching a marvel movie realizing that i actually genuinely do enjoy watching them and and have liked them um so i have kind of been through the last few years, you know, gaining respect and, you know, admiration for these films and, 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 and getting a lot of enjoyment out of them. So my expectations at this point were kind of, I I mean, I just wanted to have a fun time and Mm. I thought that it would be a fairly hackneyed reveal of someone dying. So like Mm -hmm. just beforehand, we were kind of, you know, went to see it with friends and we were having like sushi beforehand and we were saying, well, who do you think is going to cark it? And we were kind of like, well, all going along with the idea that they were going to kill off someone to to make it like, oh, this is dramatic. Um, Mm -hmm. And then when they killed every other person in the universe (laughs) at the end, I was like, oof. Ooh, mm. they've really gone for that. And then I was kind of thinking, well, I'm not, I'm not sure they're going to paint. They're they're, they're painting themselves into quite a corner here. Um, mm. But then realised that the next two movies that are coming out are set way before this, and yeah. it's uh, Avengers in 2019, isn't it? We're going to get the answer to this. And the other people are obviously not dead. They can't just kill off Black Panther, Doctor Strange, Spider Man, and all of the Guardians of the Galaxy except R- uh, Rocket. I think, yeah, I think they all perish. Yeah. You know, they're going to have to bring them back somehow. But it had a weird sense of melancholy to a blockbuster. And mm. when so it was an absolutely rammed crowd when I went to see it on Friday of a huge variety of ages, I was kind of stuck with like a bunch of 12 year olds to my right. And, you know, people were like whooping and cheering and stuff, especially when, um, like, you know, a face came back like when Captain America came back or something you know it was kind of exciting mm. um but at the end everyone was kind of like bummed 
<laughs> but like in the best possible way, like, oh shit, how are we going to get their way out of this? Because, and this is something we've mentioned before, your biggest criticism of your Marvel movies is the, the complete and total lack of stakes. Mm. You know that everyone's going to survive to the end because it's a Marvel movie. Mm. But at the end of this, every other person in the universe dies. And whilst I do believe that a lot of those will come back, in the MCU, at least for the next kind of like 10 to 15 years of whatever they're going to do it for, I think the people will probably stay dead. It's a lot Mm. harder for them to bring back a character in a movie or a series of movies that cost hundreds of million dollars than it is for someone to do in a comic that, you know, comes out every week. Mm. Um, So there seems to be, and my initial feeling of walking out of that, it was a sense of there's some stakes, there's some finality, and there's more going on here than I thought. That said, it was a lot of plot in the movie. Yes. Um, And uh, not particularly forgiving to other people who haven't seen at least the last five Marvel movies. Hmm. Um, And I think there's been a famous bit of criticism going around Twitter the last few days from the New York Times or something. It just says, characters just show up, they aren't introduced, which is a very dumb thing to say because, um, you know, we've spent... 10 movies introducing some of these people and at this point we kind of view uh the avengers and the marvel movies as a very very expensive television show um and you know it's a long movie anyway and you know we don't have that kind of time there needs to be a shorthand is not like i was speaking to some people who really want to see it because they don't want to have it spoiled for them but they haven't Mm -hmm. seen black panther they haven't seen thor ragnarok and i said well you could go but there's just going to be moments where you're like, I actually don't know who that is. I'm just going to have to go mm. with it. And it's not right. different. It's not like the wire. You're not being dropped in and you're like, <laughs> I've got no no clue what's happening and no one's being, there's no previously on. But mm. like, you know, it's still not particularly forgiving for someone who's just dropping mm. in. I thought that they kind of managed a lot of the plot threads as much as there was relatively well. It was always kind of clear what was happening, but there was just a lot happening all the time. Mm. Yeah. I think to to just briefly touch on the the piece, it was uh, an article by Richard Brody in The New Yorker. All right, uh, okay. Which said that, that thing about characters just showing up. And I think the the that kind of like way of phrasing the argument as it showed up on Twitter, I think is, does present as very dumb. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems like a very facile criticism of it, but I think it does, but the article itself, I think is a little more, is a lot more nuanced because Rich Brody's a great film writer. I think for me, it gets at something I, which was kind of my major problem with it, which there's, which was that the movie for me didn't feel that momentous in a lot of ways. Some parts of it did, but, a lot of the time, like characters, I, I like I I don't think that they should be like, oh Captain America, it's great to see you. How have you been since you know you went on the run from everyone and you know went in search of you know blah, 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 and like listing off a bunch of things that happened. It would have been interminable if they did that for for fifty seven characters, however <laughs> many if they had to to try and reintroduce everyone. But it did feel like, with the exception of them of of Captain America himself kind of like stepping out of the shadows and grabbing the spear which admittedly had been kind of robbed of a lot of its power by being one of the central things in the trailer I did feel as if a lot of the time characters just kind of like appeared and there was it didn't feel like 
the film gave enough room to breathe being like oh it's great to see this character again um with the one exception of like t'challa being introduced to like that great third person shot of him kind of like walking in slow motion which kind of made me think i wonder if they reshot this after the opening weekend of black panther just to kind of really give him his kind of like his hero shot Mm -hmm. because it felt like they were really or they like had shot it on the off chance maybe this will be a big deal and we'll use this if Black Panther's a success because this shot is very kind of full of import and dramatic. But I think for a lot of the time, like the the, the example that I go to is like when Captain America and Bucky see each other again in Wakanda, mm-hmm. which is basically Captain America has arrived with the rest of the Avengers in Wakanda. They're trying to get the Infinity Stone that's in Vision's head out in order to destroy it uh, and therefore kind of like foil Thanos' plans by preventing him from getting the last of the Infinity Stones. And uh, Bucky has been kind of like hiding out there to kind of like try and rebuild himself. And the way in which they see each other is basically Captain America says, how are you doing, Buck? And they kind of like hug and then prepare to go off to battle. And I was watching it, I was thinking, you did two whole movies <laughs> in which these characters' relationship was like the driving plot point and like the key emotional thing, particularly in The Winter Soldier, was about the lengths that Captain America would go to to try and get his friend back and to kind of try and deprogram him. And the moment when they are reunited in that way should be it should have like weight and importance. And in the movie, for me, it just kind of falls really, really flat. Mm. And it's not like you would need like a whole five minute scene of them sitting down and talking through their feelings or whatever. But like, I think there are ways that you could stage moments like that, that felt kind of like important and gay people who have invested in that relationship, a sense of, Oh man, isn't this great? There are ways to do that. And I think for me, even though I, I enjoyed the movie and I think it is better than could have been expected given the level of difficulty of making it and giving the concerns that you and I certainly have voiced about whether or not it would just be an ungodly mess. I think its key, its two key problems are that it doesn't have many of its own internal emotional arcs and it kind of leans on a lot of the ones from the previous films to give certain moments meaning. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't really land a lot of those moments. Like Spider-Man's death, death, you know, when he disappears, when Thanos activates the Infinity Gauntlet, is sad because, like, Tom Holland is a really, really good actor and he brings a lot of kind of, like, vulnerability and surprising realness to it. When he is, like, fading away and he's in Tony's arms, you know, he does let in that sense of, like, oh this guy's just a teenager who's pretending that he's a warrior. He is just trying to get through this and he's disappearing and he's dying essentially. You know, that is in the abstract, very kind of sad, but a lot of it is like, well, if you haven't really seen homecoming and seen how his and Tony's relationship has grown over time, then it doesn't necessarily hit as hard. Similarly, like Loki's death at the very start of the movie like it's it may it's sad because you know Thor's brother's dying but unless you've seen Ragnarok and you've seen how their relationship has changed and how there's been this kind of Thor T-H-A-W between them 
then it, it's just a thing that happens. And I don't feel like the movie really lands those well on its own terms or in terms of the other movies. Mm, I think, yeah, I agree in the sense that if you did watch them in context of the other ones, then it actually harms it as much as it aids it. Like, mm. the last time that Cap and Bucky saw each other was when Cap puts Bucky in deep freeze in Wakanda. Yes. And, like, it's not like he's been kept updated of what's happening. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, he really kind of needed at least a moment. But in a, in a film, you've got so many uh, moments to squeeze in. Um, mm. something had to give and I feel like you know in some of those places like when you view when you view them all if you watched if you had a marathon and watched the last five or something together then that that yeah. moment will fall incredibly flat whereas the moment with Tom Holland uh, and you know Peter Parker dying in Tony's arms uh, will be strengthened if you've watched uh, Spider-Man Homecoming 2 before mm. because you realise that Tony Stark recruited a kid to help yeah. him and you know they lay it on fairly thick that they might want to have a kid him and pepper in a scene mm-hmm. earlier and then to have his son kind of the fit the, the person that looks to him as a father figure and you know have him die in his arms has emotional weight but not if you haven't seen spider-man homecoming in the last week mm. yeah i think the way i would kind of sum it up is i feel like the plot suffocates the characters in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. because there are so many moving pieces and it jumps around between them very much like a a prestige tv show of a big ensemble like the editing in this is very similar to the editing you get on your average episode of game of thrones or westworld where it's kind of like picks up a plot point and then kind of moves along to the other one and it has this sense that it's just constant rising action throughout Mm. without really any moments to slow down to add contrast except in the my favorite subplot of the whole movie which is all the stuff with thor and the guardians of the galaxy mm-hmm. which is largely downtime of them just kind of like chatting and being funny particularly when they first encounter thor and everyone on the ship is just in awe of him mm-hmm. <laughs> drax saying he's like a pirate and an angel had a baby <laughs> um we're talking about everyone... how fat star lords become which, mm-hmm. was a, yeah. which made me chuckle quite a lot yeah, and there was there was that real sense that, oh, it's very smart of them that what they've done here is they've put the two characters with the highest self-regard for themselves, Thor and Star-Lord, in the same room together. But it has brought... It really gives rise to all of Star-Lord's insecurities about himself because he's realised, oh, this man is objectively perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, like, he is what I think I am. And that is very fun. I I kind of don't think a lot of the other times there are that many instances where you get these unlikely pairings and characters where the dynamics and their different philosophies or different personalities really spark off of each other, which was one of the the main pleasures of the first Avengers movie was seeing all these characters in the same place and realising, oh, they don't 100% get along with each other, but they do at least see eye to eye on enough things to kind of make things work. Whereas here in the face of a bigger threat it makes sense that they would kind of band together but there wasn't really as much of that comedic threesome between as many of them uh, except any time Mark Ruffalo was in a scene with people and doing like his very kind of like 
mumbly character actor thing mm. uh, in a, a big, glossy blockbuster movie, which uh, is always a dynamic that I have fun uh, seeing play out. Mm. Do you think that they just couldn't be bothered to do the Hulk special effects? Because he's a bit of a passenger in a lot of the film, isn't he, Ruffalo? Mm. Yeah, I think it's it seems to be a movie that is very deliberate in withholding gratification from the audience in a lot of ways. There are crowd-pleasing moments like the big fight at the end uh, between all of the people from Wakanda and all of the kind of dog alien things. And, you know, you get to see all of the characters fighting and doing their own special thing. But in the case of the Hulk, you know, you have him at the very beginning and the rest of the time he refuses to come out Mm. for reasons that are unclear, but, you know, presumably won't be resolved until the second movie. And that also kind of plays into the cliffhanger ending of being like, hey, Thanos won. (laughs) Enjoy. Mm. (laughs) Uh, See you next year. Uh, You know, there is a a deliberate attempt to be kind of unsatisfying in some ways, Mm. which is, would be bolder in a movie that, didn't already have a guaranteed sequel. Yeah. Uh, but, when you know it's coming back, it feels a little cheap. Also, um, kind of weird, because in the trailer, um, in the kind of the trailer that ends with the iconic shot of, I say iconic, uh, it's mm-hmm. a shot, and it's in slow motion, mm-hmm. um, of Captain America and all the other guys running through the woods on Wakanda to clearly face down someone. The Hulk is in the background. As the Hulk, but I, he never appears in, in, in the movie. He's in the, he's in the Hulkbuster armour, isn't he? But that's it. I quite I quite like that in the sense that clearly what they've done there to try and avoid ruining it too much, they've just inserted fake shit mm-hmm. into the trailers, which I do think is quite canny in terms of something like this where you have to entice people to watch it, but also you don't want to give away too much and i think the hulk not being in the movie at all would have been very apparent if you didn't have any shots of it except in like one or two scenes at the beginning uh which i think is why a lot of people sussed out that loki would be the one to go because in all the trailers and any promotional footage there was just footage of him on the spaceship and it's like ah guess he's not in much of the rest of the movie Mm. yeah him and heimdall uh they were the first casualties as soon as they happened i was like okay well Obviously, Loki's a big deal. Heimdall, you know, as much as I like Idris Elba, you know, he was really kind of not that important a character in the grand scheme of things. But, you know, maybe this is setting the tone. No one's going to die for a while. But then Gamora perishes. And I was like, oh, Mm. shit. Ah, Okay, all bets are off. And at the end, like I say, everyone else is dead. Mm. But I think, you know, those first three are genuinely dead. Yeah, that's my thinking. Anyone who died prior to the setting off of the gauntlet Mm. probably is forever dead uh you know or you know they'll they'll find some way to bring them back but it's not going to be easy Mm. um the the fact that because because the the people winking out of existence thing does seem to be the sort of thing that okay like you just make your own infinity gauntlet or whatever and reverse it or whatever they end up doing but people you know being stabbed or having their neck crushed or being thrown off of a giant cliff um, is a little harder to undo that. Mm. Uh, and yeah, I think I, I really, I didn't like Gamora dying because I like that character and uh, it was obviously very sad. But I thought that that whole sequence was handled very well in terms of fleshing out 
Thanos as a villain. I think that even though I would say of the three Avengers movies, I think this is the weakest, but largely because it's also half a movie, mm. but whilst also being 17 movies. <laughs> it's like, there's some weird uh, quantum maths going on in that equation, but it, it probably has the best villain in the sense that he is... his approach and his idea and his point of view is well articulated and makes a kind of a perverse sense it's kind of horrifying but you know he's always talking about his him wanting to commit an act of mercy by killing half the people in the universe so that the other half can live better with the finite supplies of the universe but he also the fact that he can only get the soul stone by killing what he loves and Gamora being what he loves is was very very kind of well staged and you know you felt that that was true it wasn't just he isn't this kind of inhuman monster he has feelings and he is willing to make a terrible sacrifice in pursuit of his goal and at the end of the movie when he's like laying out what it costs you do get a sense that this quest that he has been on has you know, drained him and left him kind of shattered, even though he achieved exactly what he sent out to, out to do. Mm. I'm kind of not sure. I mean, I'll pick up your thread of saying it's like the third best Avengers movie. I I, I do feel like Age of Ultron is much weaker. Um, mm. I watched that kind of relatively recently and it kind of got worse, I think. Whereas the first Avengers, I, I'll always enjoy it. But the mm. second Avengers movie just felt a bit like a chore to watch, right? Um, whereas this one, uh, like you say, is h- half a movie, but also too much movie, um, <laughs> uh, which is unusual. It's always going to feel like unfinished. But then I, I you know, I wonder, like, because obviously there's a weird chronology, isn't there, with all these movies that mm. some at some point someone's going to edit this into a forty-hour TV show an hour at a time because <laughs> obviously we're going to go back in time for Captain Marvel that's set in the 90s and mm-hmm. Ant-Man is set just before this I think um, yeah it would have to be yeah and he's going to end with him under house arrest somehow um, <laughs> because that's a compelling reason to not try and fight a universe ending monster um, mm-hmm. uh, just, just a side note um, and kind of putting uh, this in, in providing some context of the blockbuster season the summer season I've been to the cinema a lot recently, and every time this, the trailer for Han Solo plays, everyone, you can hear people going, oh, what's this? What's this? And then Chewie appears, and everyone says, oh, oh it's Star Wars. And then it ends, and people are like, mm, okay. Mm-hmm. The Ant-Man trailer is just laughs all the way through, especially when yeah. someone throws a giant Pez dispenser out of, out of uh, the back of a Hello Kitty Pez dispenser. <laughs> like, people seem to be super up for that. Um, mm. But, yeah, less behind Han Solo. Yeah, I think... I thought it was very interesting seeing the trailer for Deadpool 2 before the trailer last night, because everyone before the movie last night, because everyone was talking about how, oh, it's going to do really, really well, and everyone seems really excited for it. And most people in my audience didn't seem that interested in it but mm-hmm. everyone laughed when rob delaney's character showed up <laughs> as just peter a guy who applied for a job and then him diving out of the plane with everyone in his face being all kind of battered by the wind everyone laughed at that so uh, if that film is a success i think we can all attribute it to rob delaney who at least offers something that people aren't expecting in a deadpool movie mm. but yeah i think 
uh, it's going to be a tough act to follow this one for every other movie because even like uh, Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, which is coming off the back of a hugely successful pr- uh, previous movie and was obviously part of a, as we've talked about very recently, a much beloved kind of series or you know a, a series with one much beloved entry. Uh, I think it's going it's going to be tough to escape the shadow of this absolute behemoth that's kicked off the season. Mm, I, I wonder if it will have quite the legs, because I think people will want to see it as soon as possible to avoid having spoil for them. Yes, like, I think at the moment I would say, even though it's opening, like, 30 million higher than Black Panther, I think in the US I would be surprised if it outgrossed it. Mm-hmm. Especially because I think the response to it has been a lot more divided than say for the first avengers which had a like a multiplier of three or even the second avengers which didn't exactly get universal acclaim but still had like 2.5 or something this one because of the demand to see it instantly i'm not sure how many people would want to kind of keep revisiting it Mm, okay yeah yeah well there's always that the jason statham shark movie that is probably Mm. gonna own the summer yeah it's the new jaws yeah, um, and yeah, that got a massive reaction uh, when that trailer opened. Um, and I actually genuinely heard someone saying, like, is he going to punch the shark? <laughs> Just like, <laughs> probably. He probably will punch a shark right in the mouth. I would hope so. Yeah. I mean, that's what we're paying uh, for, right? In broader terms, I mean, what? obviously, like, we're not quite in the realm of superhero fatigue because we've got, like, seven of them coming out this year. Or at the very least, we're not in Marvel superhero fatigue. Mm-hmm. Do you think this... What do you see as being the influence of this on the industry? Do you think it's going to spur more companies to just invest in the shared universe thing? Or do you think the success of this is going to be so impossible to replicate without the level of time and investment that people will just be forced to, you know, try something else. Because when I I was watching it, I was thinking, this movie has kind of the exact same plot as as Justice League. Mm -hmm. It's very similar. (laughs) Um, They're definitely pulling from the same kind of well of comic book storytelling. But Marvel and Disney took so much time in establishing who all these characters are and what the stakes of this story are and what all of these different mythical things are that it, you know, earned more in three days than that film earned in its entire run. And it makes, you know, sense (laughs) to people who at least are casually familiar with the series that I think it really, for me, it highlights just how hard this mode of storytelling actually is on this scale. Mm. and doesn't it wouldn't suggest to me if i were a movie executive oh yeah we can do that i have got a theory that Mm -hmm. the avengers has kind of done it well and and, sorry the marvel movies has kind of built this cinematic universe very well and very effectively and done so many movies there is too much of a time sink to commit to multiple shared cinematic universes. And I think there just isn't the room 
for I think people would be exhausted by having to see nineteen films of a franchise mm-hmm. in multiple franchises. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. people are watching the Star Wars movies now, and there's people there who haven't probably seen the original ones and are watching them and revisiting the old ones at their own leisure. But mm-hmm. I had a conversation with someone at work, and they were like, "Do I need to have seen, you know, the the others?" And you say, "Well, you know, maybe the last three or four. If you really want to understand it, go all the way back to the Avengers." And that's like mm-hmm. 10 movies, <laughs> 12 movies back. And it's like, that's a massive commitment. And, mm. you know, it feels like Marvel have done it and they've kind of captured the lightning in the bottle because every other shared cinematic universe thus far has been a failure. And I think that that definitely has something to do with it, that there really is only room for one universe. So all what's going to happen is someone's going to have to click their fingers and destroy every other film ever made <laughs> to make room for another shared cinematic universe. Mm. I think it also helps in terms of Marvel's approach that even though this was built in from the beginning, because, you know, Iron Man obviously ends with, the, you know, the most audacious kind of like instance of calling your shot in cinematic history of Samuel Jackson showing up and saying, I want to tell you about the Avengers initiative. You know, they clearly had this level of ambition in the back of their minds that they wanted to bring all these characters to the screen and have them meet. Mm-hmm. They didn't kind of act like that was a fait accompli. Like, the first Iron Man is a self-contained movie. If it had been less successful than it was, then it they could have just kept making more Iron Man movies and they wouldn't necessarily have needed to go into that other direction and like the first hulk is or the only hulk in terms of the mc where the mcu is concerned was again very self-contained movie with kind of hints at a broader universe but and a little bit of crossover because tony stark's in it but it felt very much like a its own own thing and then it was only pretty much only once the avengers actually happened that you really had this sense of everything crisscrossing once they already achieved something huge that was when they were like okay we're going all in on this whereas i feel like when you look at the mummy and the whole dark universe thing when you look at the absolute shambles that the dc universe has been when you look at like king arthur from last year which i think was intended to start a cinematic universe and i know that like the forthcoming robin hood has that in its dna um they're all very much viewing it as like, okay, we just need to make this movie and it needs to make money and then we can make all of the spin-offs. Mm-hmm. As opposed to what Marvel seemed have always seemed to do, which is, okay, we need to make this movie just entertaining enough that people want to see the next one. Like, we can't take for granted that this thing is going to sustain interest in a bunch of other movies. Like, we need to make this fun and entertaining and then create a sense of in the you know similar to like pixar in a weird way of brand loyalty where people know pixar means quality so you can just take a chance on the next thing even though it's not necessarily a direct sequel to the thing that you liked before Mm. like the thing you liked before was about toys this one's about a robot that lives on a dead planet you know but the fact it's by pixar makes you take a take a chance on it and i think that's what you've seen with Marvel, it's like, okay, I liked that movie about the guy in the robot suit. I'll take a chance on this 
Norse god in a desert somewhere. You know, uh, I think that no other studio has displayed either the patience to build these things slowly and introduce all of the side stuff later or realize that the key thing here is just to like okay let's try and make this movie really good and entertaining so that we can earn the audience's trust as opposed to taking it as granted that people will see a movie about the mummy and will also want to see a movie about johnny depp as the invisible man Mm. It also really helps that the, you know, the the property that these movies are kind of like adapting generally is like individual people having their own adventures. Then they all team up and fight something massive. Mm. And it is helpful that it already exists in that form rather than, you know, with the exception of, you know, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen... The, which has already done it, that, like, you know, the mummy and all those, the kind of Victorian kind of monsters and heroes don't really team up that often, and sometimes it feels a bit weird to do that. And let's mm. not forget that they did make a film of The League of the Extraordinary Gentlemen, and it did not go well. Yes, yeah. Uh, I saw that at the cinema, and it was not a good choice. <laughs> yeah, I still haven't seen it, and I'm, yeah, I'm not that fussed. No. So... What are your kind of like final thoughts on this? Are you excited to see what happens with the second part when it comes out? And do you think that, as I do, that Marvel managed to do a great bit of sleight of hand by slow by kind of secretly changing the name of this from Infinity War Part One as it was originally released? Because I feel like if they had kept it as Infinity War Part One, everyone would have seen that ending coming. Yeah. Because that when it was announced back when, you know, it was taken as written that, oh, you can just split movies in half and they'll make huge amounts of money before, like, the second Hunger Games flamed out. Mm-hmm. Um, that seemed to be, like, the assumption is like, oh, I guess in the first one, Thanos must win. And then, you know, the second one's all about kind of resolving it. I think just calling it Infinity War and having it being kind of a definitive title seems to, I think maybe misdirect people enough not to think that, oh, you know, this is going to be... To think, oh, this is going to be, like, just another self-contained Marvel story. Mm. And also, you know, they'd probably come up with a a very clever name for the second one, which would have given away the ending, Um, Mm. which, like, my favourite would be uh, Avengers Reassemble. Right, yeah. Um, Because they're all in bits now. Uh, Although Mm. all of the original Avengers from the first film survived... Yes, that's true. I can't think of anyone who, who kind of flaked away. Um, yeah. I think I'm excited for the next part. I am uh, want to see how they're going to resolve it, but also I would like. I don't want them to like bottle it. I do mm. want some. They were like everyone's like back to normal. And they're like, oh shit, we forgot Bucky or you know <laughs> or something. So I want some. I want this to have been worth it. You know the the feeling of going like you know oh, shit, this is bad, to actually be bad. There's mm. too many times where the heroes just get away, and they they can kill people off. It doesn't matter. I mean, you know, we know they're not going to kill off Black Panther and Spider-Man because yeah. they've already announced the, their sequels. Mm. Whether or not the second part... If we, if we think that the Avengers, the next Avengers, is going to be the end of this phase of Marvel movies... As in the original Avengers, you know, your Captain America, your 
uh, Iron Man, your Thor, your Hulk, your Black Widow, your Captain America, they're going to fade away and they're going to be replaced by the new heroes of like, you know, Black Panther, Ant-Man, all the other guys, the new people. If we're saying that, then it's like, oh, it's, you've already just faced someone who killed every other person in the galaxy. <laughs> what could possibly be the next threat? And whether mm. or not the appetite will be there after you've seen, you know, the Woodstock lineup. Do you want to go right. to the pub and be the only person in the crowd at your mate's gig? Mm. Yeah, it makes you wonder if Marvel will have to consider making all of the individual movies slightly on a smaller scale than they have been. Not mm. necessarily... I mean, obviously, they'd have to be, like, cheaper because at a certain point, you know, not you're going to make a bad couple of movies and people will maybe be a little more wary. Mm. That's just, you know, no one can be that consistent for that long, uh, you know, in certainly in the in the arts where, if, you know, you can have any kind of, like, screenwriting formula and you can take as kind of few risks as possible, eventually things are just not going to work out for you. Mm. Um, they maybe will have to say, okay, we need to do more stuff like Spider-Man Homecoming, where the stakes are, it's just like a guy, you know, trying to balance his life as a kid and a superhero. And the stakes in it are just that this villain is stealing weapons. It's not, really about the end of the world like bad things will happen if he doesn't stop him but it's not lights in the sky <laughs> destroying a city again you know i think that one of the reasons why some of the more recent ones have done so well is that they have broken away from oh every movie ends with the heroes trying to stop some sort of world-ending catastrophe mm -hmm. um because it, no, it's good to have that contrast you know it's the last couple have really uh you know i think guards of the galaxy was the only one that really had potential universe altering consequences as part of its story obviously thor ragnarok has the destruction of asgard as a big part of it but you know it follows through on that and it ends up happening so it's kind of different you know it, it has a different tenor to it so maybe after this the if they have to start with a new crew of heroes they can maybe go back to telling slightly more focused stories than uh, and kind of like rebuild from there it would mm. seem to be the smartest way to do it rather than just kind of keep making stuff that's like huge and every movie ends with them having to try and save the world because then at least then you know the the hero crossover and team of events feel more momentous which i think may also have been one of the problems with Age of Ultron, like all of the movies that took place after the first Avengers pretty much revolved around the heroes trying to stop the end of the world. Mm. And then suddenly it's like, oh, we have to get together to stop this particular end of the world. It's like, well, why aren't you all joining together for the other ones? Those seem pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it does kind of become a bit repetitive to the mm. point where you get something like an Ant-Man or a Thor Ragnarok, something that's a little bit different. And I wonder yeah. whether that's the way they'll focus doing it, doing them kind of smaller, more interesting stories, because there's clearly an appetite for that. And mm. like Guardians of the Galaxy 2 and bits of this Avengers movie showed that like, you know, it the, the appeal of those films isn't actually what they're doing or what they're trying to stop. It's just watching those characters hang out is really fun. Mm. Yeah. And I think 
also I think what this movie kind of approached but didn't for me didn't commit to enough was the idea of making Thanos the actual protagonist because he is he is the one with the quest and the arc that he is following and he is he's probably the one who until the very end loses the most as a result Mm -hmm. of doing the whole thing but it's not really from his perspective because it's an Avengers movie like maybe it hints at the fact that they could do something that's a little more skewed in its perspective something that's like an anti-hero story rather than making everything about heroes I think if this movie had maybe committed more to the idea of showing Thanos as kind of the lead rather than you know that being something that the Russo brothers say in interviews and then you watch and you think "Eh." I mean he's on screen a lot but I wouldn't say he was the central focus of the movie he just is the thing that links together a bunch of characters Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I did think that whilst watching, actually, like, I'm starting to care more about Thanos mm. than some of, like... I, there was one point where I was like, oh, where's Hawkeye? And then I was mm-hmm. like, well, actually, like, I really don't mind that he's not in this because <laughs> Thanos is just this, you know, force of destructive nature that's just kind mm. of ploughing through everything in the film. I was um, very confused because obviously we stuck around for the uh, post-credit scene, which good yeah. post-credit scene, by the way. Mm-hmm. But we stuck around. And then towards the end, there was two things in the credits that completely threw me. <laughs> one was a thank you to the University of East Anglia, right, um, yeah. which was confusing. The second one was a, uh, you know, characters from Arrested Development. Thank you for mm. being used by, like, kind permission of 20th Century Fox or whatever. And I was just like, oh, God, what, did I miss that? And I know that the Russo brothers directed uh, quite a few episodes of Arrested Development. They directed the pilot, I think, and yes. some other ones. Um, and they famously put the stair car in the uh, Civil War. <laughs> and then I was like, I wonder if, like, if I watch it again, it wasn't really Bucky, it was Jay Walter Weatherman <laughs> with one arm saying, you know, and this is why we don't start galactic conflict. Mm. Um, but it wasn't. It was apparently Tobias is in the Collector's um, Museum, but I didn't know. Yeah. No, I didn't know either until uh, I went online and looked it up. My hope going in, because I'd heard that there was going to be an a, a Arrested Development character in it, my hope was that during the big fight in Wakanda, Martin Short would show up and just tell Captain America to shoot him and like he would throw him into Thanos' glove or something. Mm. <laughs> I would watch that. I think, yeah, I would definitely watch that. Because there is honestly nothing funnier than just looking at the gif of Martin Short being thrown inelegantly at Buster and knocking him down. I think mm. working that into a uh, working that into a big budget blockbuster would be quite spectacular. In terms of like the action, were there any moments in it that kind of leapt out to you as being particularly memorable? Because I was just trying to think on it today, and I thought that. A lot of the stuff that really stuck with me were kind of the moments of humor and interaction. Like I really, I really, really liked the scene of Thor and Rocket just kind of like talking because Thor's talking about everything he's lost and you really get a sense of just how crushed he is by guilt and grief and everything. And you get also that sense of Rocket having grown a lot as a character as a result of stuff that happened in the second Guardians movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but like in terms of the action scenes, there were there were like individual moments, like the death of Proxima Midnight, uh, Carrie Coon's character, who is the woman who gets thrown into that giant buzzsaw, and Black Black Widow just goes, 
That was gross. <laughs> Which was very funny. But again, there weren't it, it didn't strike me as a particularly effective work of action cinema, even though a lot of it did consist of fights. Mm. I think I really liked the bit where um, on Titan, where they mm-hmm. uh, jumped Thanos and their plan to kind of just basically hold him down and take his glove off. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a very schoolyard uh, plan that we're always yeah. going to bundle this guy and then pull his thing off. But I liked the way that broke up where mm-hmm. it was a, you know, it wasn't Thanos's power. It was a, one of our superheroes weaknesses. Um, mm. And whilst I don't think that the, like we obviously have seen the relationship between Peter Quill and Gamora develop. It's that moment wasn't that earned, I guess, mm. but I did like the fact that that's how it ended. Yeah. I I think that was one of my favorite scenes also because it, it was probably one of the one that best used, like one of the appeals of a superhero crossover movie, which is you have all these people with very disparate powers. Mm-hmm. Let's see what happens when they're combined. So, Doctor Strange using his teleportation or opening portals for people. So Spider-Man's appearing from nowhere to kick Thanos in the face and disappearing again. And and um, Iron Man kind of doing all of these different permutations on his weapons and Peter Will just kind of annoying him. <laughs> just kind of like flying around and shooting him with his, his tiny pistols. I, I, I did really like that. And like you say, it at least has... You know, action at its best should advance the plot or say something about the characters. And I do feel like that was a good case of, you know, revealing a his hot-headedness and him allowing his emotions to get the better of their plan. Even though, you know, based on Doctor Strange saying that he saw like 14 million possible outcomes and there was only one in which they won and then his final words were there was no other way. Makes me think that this probably was the future that he foresaw in which they won but the victory is going to take a little while and so Mm. he probably knew that quill was going to fuck up because i don't obviously i only saw it last night and i don't have a exact maybe the scene but i don't remember him being one of the ones trying to keep quill calm Mm. like telling it so i'm wondering if maybe he foresaw that and thought okay this this is kind of how it has to go Mm. I'll tell you something, Benedict Gumberbatch's American accent's improved since Doctor Strange. Yes, it has, hasn't it? He he was a lot more convincing here, and I think that he, again, it was a fun combination of him and Tony Stark, because you're putting the two characters with the greatest sense of their own genius and importance in the same room, and they're, they both have complete disregard for each other's achievements, because one of them thinks the other's a silly wizard and the other thinks he's just like a petulant playboy billionaire. Mm, yeah, yeah. I did enjoy some of their interplay early on. And yeah, I'm relieved that um, Benedict Wong made it through. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Because obviously with Loki and Heimdall buying it, I thought, well, let's take a, a secondary character from uh, one of the films and he'll be he'll be a red shirt for the, uh, <laughs> for the time being. And I'm yeah. so pleased that Errol from... 15 stories high has made it through yeah. to the to the second part of the Avengers Infinity War. Mm, yeah, and he, had, he, he got was... his own poster as well, which is amazing. Yeah, God, imagine trying to collect all of those character posters. Yeah, it'd be exhausting. Just, I think also just in terms of the action, I think we were kind of spoiled a little bit by Thor Ragnarok, which 
had a very distinct approach to its action sequences in that its action sequences had kind of this goofy, gleeful sense of fun. Like, you know, obviously Thor just defeating people to Immigrant Song is is just this kind of like joyously nerdy thing. And like, I was, I think for me, the kind of the, the, the real disappointment of of the action in Infinity War is when Thor returns to Earth for the first time in quite a while uh, and kind of like jokingly says to Captain America, ah, you've copied my beard, <laughs> which was quite good. Uh, you know, he shows up and someone says you're screwed now, but I can't remember which character. It's the uh, Hulk. Oh, right. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. It's Banner says you're screwed now. I kind of think, oh yeah, things are going to really kick off. And then it's just like, oh, he just kind of like electrifies all of these anonymous baddies and they don't really show much focus. I think there was just, I think Thor Ragnarok benefited from Taika Waititi really, you know, keeping everything focused on like the, what the characters are up to and maintaining a sense of rhythm and momentum in each of the fight scenes. Even when things were chaotic, you kind of still had a sense of who was winning and who was losing. And I feel like the Russo brothers don't have a good handle for that in terms of their pacing and editing. Like, it's all just constant battle and chaos and no sense of who's winning at any one time, which, like, fine if you're making a realistic war movie. But, you know, if you're doing kind of high high fantasy or, you know, kind of, like, comic booky stuff, I feel a more focused and heightened approach to the action can be beneficial in that regard. Mm, yeah. It, and there's, they always had the same problem as a lot of, well, the Avengers one and the Avengers two, and I think maybe a couple of other ones have, there's kind of like just an amalgus mass of not poorly designed aliens coming for them, mm-hmm. but just kind of uninspiring design of aliens. They just like disposable cannon fodder to present some mild peril for mm. people to kind of hack their way through. Yeah, and the aliens in this, again, it, they were very similar to, like, the Dark Seeds minions in Justice League. Like, they couldn't fly, but they were basically just anonymous, like you say, cannon fodder, just getting torn apart, and sometimes being torn apart in fun ways, but the only times I was really engaged with any of the fights was when they were fighting the children of Thanos, you know, his kind of, the, you know, mid-level sub-bosses of the movie, where... They were, they had distinctive powers. One of them had kind of, you know, control of magic or psychic powers or whatever. One of them was a really great kind of sword fighter. One was just massive and with a mm-hmm. big axe. You know, those fights had a little bit of flavor to them. And it, you got a genuine sense of like pleasure when they tricked the psychic one and blast, blasted him out into space and he throws to death. And it's like, yeah, okay, that was cool. Because. Mm that guy was a dick <laughs> and you know we got just enough a sense of him to know that he really deserved to die but for a large part of them i think the over-reliance on big hordes of cgi monsters being you know torn apart was uh yeah not that not that impressive also i thought it was really funny that it's like okay we need bucky and then all bucky did was shoot with a gun <laughs> <laughs> It was just like, ah, yes, his great ability as a fighter. He has a gun, <laughs> especially especially when he's trying to, like, he and everyone else is trying to stop Thanos from getting to Vision at the end. It's just kind of like, oh, yeah, that's really going to do it. <laughs> mm. You're going to hit him with that fucking assault rifle and it's going to stop him in his tracks. 
Mm, had a good gag with um, with Rocket though, who appears to collect body parts. Um, <laughs> kind of, yeah, yeah. I feel like he was really cool uh, in it. Rocket, um, yes, played by Sean Gunn and Bradley Cooper. And yeah. yeah, I thought he had some some kind of good business. But yeah, like you say, it's weird to think that you know when you just ask that question about picking out uh, the action scenes, that it just kind of all seemed to. Kind of not particularly jump out. There was a bit where they were in Edinburgh and they were still outside yeah. a takeaway and there was a sign that said, we will deep fry your kebab, <laughs> which, <laughs> which you know, sounds delicious and a little bit sexual. Um, mm. But yeah, I'm, I thought that was a great thing to, because obviously, you know, they didn't just turn up and shot, shoot it. Like, you know, these films are designed within an inch of their life. Someone genuinely put that sign there to be mm-hmm. included in the film. And I'm a big fan of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I I rewatched Spider Man Homecoming today, and I was just thinking that you know that movie doesn't have it doesn't have that many action sequences in general, but like the scene at the Washington Monument is really mm-hmm. kind of memorable and has a, a kind of a great impact to it, a great sense of emotional weight to it, and I feel like that's one of the things that really holds this one back. Or the Battle of New York in Avengers has you know some like really memorable scenes and you know there are moments like cap instructing the police to kind of keep civilians away which allow for little character beats whereas for the most part this it was just like okay we're gonna just shoot and stab and bash people about a lot Mm, yeah i did like how banner defeated the large man (laughs) where he's fighting him in the hawkbuster armor and then he just like after well, at the point where he looks like he's going to be completely destroyed, he just jams like the severed arm onto him and turns on the boost. So he ends up being dragged against the Wakanda energy seal until he's like burnt to a crisp, which I thought, okay, that was pretty fun. That was a, a good way of ending that fight and also seemed like a very painful way to die. Mm, yeah, it was pretty gross. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, we've gone quite long on this episode and uh, so I think we'll, we'll skip recommendations. Just, People go and watch Infinity War, I guess. It's fun. Mm, if you haven't seen it and you waited and listened to the whole thing to ask us to wait for us to recommend it at the end, <laughs> then yeah, um, I apologize. It's probably gonna uh, fall a little flat with some of the uh some of the reveals in it. Mm, yeah. If you've decided you wanted to know everything that happened in the movie. I mean we didn't reveal everything, I don't think. We didn't talk that much about like Peter Dinklage's bit. No. His his accent hasn't improved. <laughs> yeah his was very much just i'm i guess i'm Tyrion now mm. that's just what i do uh although i guess his accent that voice does fit uh, like a something like that which is such a high fantasy kind of character a giant dwarf essentially i mean like i'm not saying that because of peter english that's literally like he talks about how his race are dwarves but they are also like 20 mm. feet tall <laughs> yeah that's kind of that was kind of weird and then the yeah. more I think about that, <laughs> I don't know, is that a thing from the comics that the dwarves are big, but then they're called dwarves. The word dwarf means diminutive. I, mm. No, I'm confused. Yeah, but, uh, you know, working a giant forge to make a magic axe, that was, I, I enjoyed that stuff. That was one of those moments where you think these movies have gotten very big and goofy from the kind of pseudo-realism of Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk. mm mm-hmm. When you consider, like, the, the Incredible Hulk movie was basically billed as, okay, we're doing a Bourne movie, but there's a Hulk in it. 
to then get to this point where a god is holding open an aperture so that a rebooted sun can like shoot at him and through him so that they can start up this forge to make a magic axe that will kill this man who's traveling across time to wipe out half the universe Mm, the handle of which is made from a kind of sentient tree who is Mm. a a moody teenager in this in this film which is was uh good for laughs Mm, yeah the uh uh vin diesel working kind of adolescent kind of snippiness into just saying i am groot (laughs) was uh was very well done but uh, yeah, if you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Play FM, all the usual places, write us a review, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way for us to grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. We are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.